Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Our next guest is from Vancouver and studied at the Royal Conservatory of Music there. She later went on to study at the Berklee College of Music and recently wrote the music for an episode of Netflix's Moving Art entitled Hokkaido, the National Film Board of Canada's documentary Now's the Time, which premiered at Sundance, and she composed the music for Sony film The Broken Heart Gallery, produced by Selena Gomez. On top of all that, she is one half of the electronic pop duo Dark Dark, signed to Network Records and whose debut EP, Heathered, has been featured on NPR's All Songs Considered, Noisy, and Consequence of Sound, among others. And the composer is Genevieve Vincent. Hey, hey. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. How are you? Doing pretty well. I can't complain. Just, uh... Yeah, looking for trees <laughs> right now. <laughs> I feel like it's totally legit for people to be like, you know, I could complain because we're in a pandemic, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been a rough time uh, just outside <laughs> yeah. of the pandemic too. It's just so interesting to see when people have time indoors how uh, the fight for social justice <laughs> continues. Yes, thank God people have time to fight for social justice. Sadly, people have too much time to fight against it. So we, right. we I'm hoping for the good side to come through. <laughs> for sure. Uh, during quarantine, have you been like playing a lot of music outside of like any work things? Have you been writing for Dark Dark? Yeah, I mean, I've been writing all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, <laughs> everything from like songs for like a future dark dark record to like jingles for ads to like scoring a thriller which I'm doing right now and it's like it's like by far the most aggressive like like synth insanity that I've ever delved into and it's super fun um but then I'm also scoring a Christmas movie so I'm kind of like ping-ponging like through all these different genres yeah, so it's been artistically a very interesting time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The music industry is one of the only places where you can celebrate Christmas in September. <laughs> yes, this is true. It's very true. And like, I think the thing is, is like when you're doing something really, really dark. That like, uh, I've never actually scored like a super dark movie, like the one I'm working on right now. And then I'm switching over to like something really light. It's it's a really like nice relief because I'm like, oh, like. It's, you know, it's a lot of heaviness, so you got to have a little bit of relief. For sure, yeah. <laughs> if you don't have that balance, then, well, especially doing a thriller right now is probably not a good thing for anyone's <laughs> mental I know, sanity. it's so funny. It's like, I've never felt so, like, in the middle of, like, the vibe for that. It's, it's, it's great. It's just that when you're done, you're like, whoa, I need a drink. Like, that was rough. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, so I want to ask about, so I know that you're you're a violinist, you're a vocalist. What came first and like when did you decide you that you love music or that you wanted to like go into music? So first I totally have to 
um, cop to the fact I'm not a violinist. I <laughs> I started out on violin though. It was my first mm-hmm. instrument, and I quit promptly. Uh, a few years later, as a, as a kid, um, I had that typical like teacher that like whacked a ruler on the side of my music stand and like yelled at me every single lesson to like practice more. And so I think that drove me away. But I I actually, um, so I would say keyboards are kind of like my first like instrument instrument other than violin, but I would say like vocals are really the thing that I like write with the most and the thing that I kind of like use the most. And kind of just like the way that I hear things in my head is in a really sort of like melodic key. It's more of in a keyboard to voice relationship, I think. Although I love writing for strings because it's kind of like writing for a whole bunch of voices. So it kind of, I feel like it works the same, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I remember when I met you uh, at Arbel's birthday party, in case she's listening. uh, (laughs) uh, Shout out to Arbel. (laughs) The best. Uh, you mentioned that you write everything, like every cue, just with your voice, and then you replace everything later, which I just thought was crazy. Oh, that's um, that's cool that you remember that. Yeah. Um. So it's kind of a weird story. I like. I wish I had thought of this like years and years and years ago. Um, it was this thing. So I'd always like just written like into a MIDI keyboard or like, um, just if I was scoring, I always just like wrote into the session and, or like I use Sibelius. Sometimes I used to just like have an idea and then just like put it into Sibelius or whatever. Um, and then like I had this gig a few years ago where there was like a really fast turnaround and I was like, oh my God, like the way I've been writing, like it's just not fast enough. And I was like, I have this. And, and then I just like remembered, I was like, I can like make up like melodies like super easily like why am I not just like singing this idea like right into the DAW and then just like tracing over it with MIDI because like then I have the whole idea it's like a broad it's like painting broad strokes and then filling it out afterwards so um yeah so I sat down to write this little piece called the polar bear waltz which was like about a three and a half minute like demo essentially uh for this animated short and um yeah, I just like sang it all the way through. And I was like, and it was this sort of, sort of like a, it's got a bit of like an Eastern European classical kind of vibe to it, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I used to study with a, a Russian teacher at, at Berkeley who, uh, Ala Cohen, who um, just, I mean, I think she instilled that sort of like in my ear. So yeah, I don't know. I just like sat down and sang it and and it made it just made it work. It was fast. And ever since then, I just kind of like, yeah, it's better to have the idea and then sing it through and orchestrate it afterwards kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so were you, <laughs> um, that sounds like that came a little later on, I guess, after Berkeley that you kind yeah. of discovered that. Yes. <laughs> uh, when you were at Berkeley, were you like study? I mean, I know you went to the film scoring program, I think, and did the yeah. dual major in that and? Uh, composition. Composition. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Were you producing while you were there too? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this the other day and like, I guess like I, I, um, so I had a band while I was there with a friend of mine. I'm not going to say the name of it because you can look it up and I do not want you to. So it's not coming out. Um, but we had a band and, uh, we both used to produce all the, the songs basically like 
I used to use Reason, like just Reason. It was like there was, I think, DP in Reason. Like then I started to use Rewire with Reason. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, I scored my first short film using only Reason, which ended up going to the Tribeca Film Festival. And I was like, oh, my God, like, ah, <laughs> my horrible Reason <laughs> score is being played by all these people. So I kind of like always just used whatever electronic stuff they gave us, I guess, and tried to make the most of it. Yeah. What <laughs> so that film uh, that had or that played at Tribeca, that was something yeah. you did while you were in school too? Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. There was this indie filmmaker, um, Jeff Chiba Stearns, who I knew from Vancouver, and he um, he was like, I have no money. Do you want to score this short film? And I was like, yes. And, um, <laughs> and it was this, like, I want to say it was, like, seven minutes, and it was animated. And it was about his, like, it was right after the tsunami had happened. Um, and it was about, like, his experience. He always, um, at the time, he was making a lot of films about his experience as a mixed-race person being half Japanese and half white. And so this particular film kind of, like, involved, like, his experience of like I guess reacting to the tsunami and then reacting to all these different things happening and reacting to the World Trade Center and just sort of like reconciling with all this stuff and um and it was this really like super dynamic like hand-drawn animation thing on yellow sticky notes and he called it yellow sticky notes and I yeah I just kind of was like well I have reason and I will make a score for you <laughs> So I just made him a score and he loved it. And that was that. <laughs> so that, that's a bit silly because like that that definitely painted film scoring as like way too easy. But it worked out. We had a really good thing and we did like five films together. So Yeah, it's also interesting because I feel like still younger composers come up to me asking about uh, whether it, it's worth it to work on things for free. And mm -hmm. I always feel like it kind of makes sense at some point, but to not work for free, but realize that like you don't need to get paid in money all the time it could be mm -hmm. a favor here or there or if it's a story that you just are truly in love with and you should do it yeah for sure I think also like it's a funny thing because um I've done a lot of like film like things to picture that are things that I wouldn't normally watch myself and that's like a super interesting exercise because I think like we naturally gravitate towards things we watch and we sort of know like how to score those scenes because we feel we feel how we how we should feel when we play the music how it should be because we're we've watched so many of these things and I think when you when you get asked to do something in like a genre that you would never do I think that's really cool because and, and honestly something you should do for free because a you're not good at it yet so like why would anyone pay you to do it <laughs> B, um, you can learn how to do it. And then it's like kind of like you can go and go like, okay, well, what are the comps for this? Like if if it's a rom-com, like should I watch Love Actually? Or if it's a, I don't know, if it's an animated thing, is it kind of like, is it a Wes Anderson stop motion-y type thing? Or is it a Disney type thing? Or like I kind of enjoy the research of that. And like I always feel really happy when someone asks me to do something that I'm not used to doing because I'm like, oh, like you think I'm a good enough writer to kind of like figure this out. And it's like a great opportunity to like expand your chops. So yeah, do it for free. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. <And> actually, <laughs> <for a> so <laughs> <laughs> Up until the rent comes. 
<laughs> Until the rent needs to be paid and then ask for a million dollars. Yes. And all the pub. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point because I know that like a lot of the film scoring programs make you do like rescores. Yeah. And yeah, I guess all that kind of can expand your horizon and push you musically. Yeah. Especially if it's a movie that you wouldn't necessarily want to watch in your free time. Yeah, I think too, like I have to admit, like I I really pref- like I like working under pressure and like I get a lot of anxiety every time I start a new project. Like even like no matter what it is, like I just like freak mm. out. I'm like, I'm very calm on the outside, but inside I'm like having a freak out. And then as soon as I like write the first couple of notes, I like completely relax. And I think it's like, it's like there's something about like just throwing yourself into something that's uncomfortable that's like, it's growth. It's good. You care. <laughs> so. Yeah. The first time I was ever cocky and I went in and was like, oh yeah, I can like do the music for this. <laughs> I set the first pass of the movie and everything was rejected. Ah, so. I mean, I know, literally, this is like, I don't know if this is considered Murphy's Law. I kind of am not studious enough to like remember that exact thing, but let's just apply it for this because it's like, I feel like every time I do something that I think I've done, I've really nailed it. I've never nailed it. Every single time I do something where I'm like, I write it and I'm like, oh my God, like, I just don't know, like, oh my God, I hope they like it. Like, ah, like then they're like, we love it. No changes. So like, I don't understand. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny because I think that the greatest moment of composer's life is when they find out they got hired for a project, which is immediately followed by feelings of dread and discomfort. (laughs) Ah, the expectations. I know. It's kind of addictive though. I think that's the thing. It's like, there's this kind of, I recently had a conversation with uh, this director I'm working with because he actually feels very similar similarly about directing. And it's like, Hmm. basically, like, every time I do a project, like, part of me feels like I'm going to war, which, like, I don't know what going to war is like. Like, that's an, an inappropriate, like, you know, analogy. But, like, I feel like I'm literally, like get, you know, like I have to psych myself up for it. I like, I'm like, okay, like you're going on lockdown, like whatever it takes, like you're going to have to like, you know what I mean? Like get your backpack, like, you know, and it's, I go into this like kind of crazy sort of put everything else aside. And there's something really addictive about that, about like just throwing yourself into something and, you know, it gives you purpose in your life or something. (laughs) Well, in terms of throwing yourself into a situation, so you you went from Berkeley to New York City, mm-hmm. and did you start working at was it I and R first, and then Search Party? Um, yeah, actually, yeah. So the first job I got out of Berkeley was an internship at a company called Butter Music. They used mm-hmm. to be called Fluid. They were an editorial company and a music company, like a jingle house. Um, and I got an internship there, and then from there, I went to work at Mophonics briefly, uh, which is another jingle house. And then I worked at Human, which is another jingle house. And then I babysat some children for four months because I was like laid off from Human. And I was like, I need to make money. And my friend was like, I babysit rich children. And I was like, I'll do it. So I did that for four months. And then I got my job at YNR and I was like, I'm saved. And yeah, then Search Party, then Walker. So it was quite a lot of a lot of music and advertising right. experience. <laughs> so while you were there, you were doing, I mean, you were writing music too, but as top yeah. of that, you were, you were doing music supervision and helping with clearance and all that as well. Yeah, totally. Like, um, it was interesting. It's like when I, I was doing all kinds of stuff at first, 
at first, I was kind of at Butter, I was like assisting kind of everybody, the producer, the composers. At the time, it was like a really cool, like, we had like Sun Lux was like an in-house composer there, Ryan Lott, um, who's just amazing. So I got to hear his music all the time. Um, Judson Crane was there uh, as an in-house composer. And then one of the owners, Andrew Sherman, of course, was there. And they were always like writing music all the time. And I would pop in and like be like, hey, do you need anything? I would get charts for them or, you know, hook up a mic or like, you know, just do random stuff. But the producer there, Ian Jeffries, was like, you're really good with people. You should, like, consider doing some producing stuff and we might have an opening. And I I kind of, uh, I just was, when I got out of Berkeley, I was kind of in the position where I was like, wow, I have a lot of student debt. Uh, my parents can't really support me. So, like, I better get a job. And it was sort of serendipitous. And that's what led to me, like, going into the production side of things first. It was the most economical and it was the uh, the opportunity that came. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was a lot of pressure too, right after graduation to have to like lock down a job. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think I think especially when you move into a new city and you don't know anybody, you know, when you kind of meet like a work family, like it's really nice, you know, to um, to have that. So we we just got along great. So. Yeah. And then that, of course, I didn't really do any music supervision until I got to Search Party. When I was at YNR, I was assisting a music supervisor. And at Human and Mophonics, I was doing a lot of like music librarian work, kind of like, or I guess, <laughs> sorry for like, I should be like very specific. I was basically doing data entry. And I was like listening to music and I was entering in like each and every instrument that I could hear. So it was like very, it was like long days of just being like, the lead is a guitar. And then the accompanying instruments are like synth, piano, da -da 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 -da, electric piano, like dulcimer. And luckily I have a really good ear. And so I could always like, I kind of like got really into picking out all the instruments I could hear. It was kind of fun. It got like, we you know, it's like sort of weirdly easy and soothing and fun. For just sure. like geek, geek out on it. Um, I used to do that at uh, Heavy Duty. Oh, music yeah. in New York when I was there. Yeah. Totally. I, yeah, with phonics, it was more fun writing the music than listening and doing the metadata. But yeah. to be fair, I think that was partly because there was a new website. So it didn't have like all the uh, open columns. So it yeah. only had like 10 instruments and you just had to pick the thing that was closest. <laughs> oh my God, amazing. Yeah, I didn't have like any database to pick instruments. So I was like, I think it's a xylophone. Like it was, and then at some point, I think it was just, I mean, this is at YNR. My actually, my boss at the time, she was trying to learn more about orchestration and stuff, and so I decided to make her this like Vimeo page with like every instrument that I knew of, hmm. and like a like an example, and then I would be like, as heard in Radiohead, and this and that and the other, and I kind of like threw together this like like teaching thing on Vimeo with like the whole orchestra. And then what was super weird and like very full circle was like a few years later, I completely forgot about it. I get like hit up by this old friend of mine from Berkeley and she's like, hey, I'm at NYU doing my master's and I just came across your Vimeo like orchestration site and I'm using it. <laughs> and I was like, what? And so I like went over there and I was like, oh, like people are like into this. So I don't even know. I honestly, I don't even know what happened to it. I just was like, well, 
It's in the ether now. Right. That's cool. You're so proactive to like make something like that for your boss who's trying to learn more. Uh, do you feel like there was yeah. anything else you learned in terms of like positive takeaways from working at those types of companies that has kind of gone on to help in your journey as a composer? Oh my God, so much stuff. I think I think really the 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 biggest thing is when I worked for Sarah Matarazzo and and Randall Poster at Search Party. So Sarah was the executive producer. Randy, of course, owned the company. It was cool. It was like I was I would run some I would run a job. Say I was like working on something for Target or work like I would be pulling songs and sort of once I was done putting together all the songs I was going to pitch to the client. I would go like, hey, Randy, like, what are your thoughts? Like, do you have any other things you want to throw in? Or like, do you want me to take anything out? Or like, you know, he would he would kind of take a listen to it and and add or add to it or whatever if he felt like it. And um, every single time he would pick out a song, I would be like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Like, mm-hmm. and it just, it was so cool because um, he really is so creative. And and there's kind of, I think what, how that, and the same thing with Sarah. I mean, I think, you know, just being in a situation with like people who have been music supervising for a really long time and then having, I think at the time I was like 24, you know, and kind of like being able to hear all their ideas, cross-reference it with your own ideas and kind of like, say ask yourself like well what's the difference between what they're picking and between what I'm picking why am I picking these things and why are they picking these things and I think it's just incredibly it's sort of like it felt sort of like a weird master's degree because it was like a couple years of of doing creative you know with these people and um I think it's just it's like an ear thing it's like I guess like there are certain descriptors now that when people throw out at me like I know what it should be. Or like, I always try to think of like, okay, this is the most obvious choice, but like, what would Randy do? Or what would Sarah do? Or what would Meg do? Or like, what would, you know, who, like any of those people, like what, what would they have? And of course I can't know, but I think I just always remember kind of like, it's, it's just so hard to describe, I guess, part of it just sort of gets in you, but like, there's, there's a sense of, um, there's just a sense of you should try to think of all the possible options and then you should try them because it's the magic thing is the thing that you didn't expect that happens to be perfect, if that makes sense. So so it was sort of like a, a master class in like magic pairing of music to picture. Because <laughs> as you know, like Randy is such a master with that. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's just so invaluable. Like, I I couldn't. There's no way I ever could have learned any of that like anywhere else. <laughs> For sure. Um, and then, out of curiosity, why did you decide to go to New York as opposed to LA if you knew you wanted to be a composer? Um, it was kind of like a. It was like a couple things. I remember, and maybe part of it was was just like being naive, but. Um, mm-hmm. I remember at first I was like, well, I can't afford to move to LA because. Like, I have all my stuff in Boston. And I was literally like, how am I going to get all my stuff from Boston to Los Angeles? (laughs) It seemed crazy. Like, with New York, it was like, I can just drive my stuff to New York and dump it in some shoebox. Like, that's what you do. Um, So I think part of it was just, like, 
short-sighted kind of economical decision. The other part of it was like, I guess I I didn't like grow up with a lot of financial stability or a lot of like stability in general. And I I think because of that, I sort of seek out to make that for myself. Mm. Um, and one of the things I didn't, one of the things was I didn't want to graduate and not have a job lined up already. Um, and so when I got my internship, I actually like went out and interviewed for that like a month before I graduated. And I think I told them that I, that I was already graduated and they were like, when can you come out for the interview? And I was like, whatever. And they were like, tomorrow. And I was like, sure. And I like got on the feng wa and like, you know, like that's, you know, obviously the scary bus uh, for like 20 bucks and uh, went out and like skipped class the next day because I was like, screw this. I need a job. And like I just, so I just like bust out there, skip class, did the interview. Um, and so, yeah, I had that lined up before I left. And, uh, you know, the, the whole like internship for credit thing, like I didn't want to do that because I couldn't really afford to do it. So like a lot of my decisions first were quite economically based just because that's just the the world that I came from. I, I didn't really have a lot of options like laid out for me qu- right away. So Gotcha. And then what, what drove you to finally go to L.A.? Actually, so yeah, it was weird. I spent quite a lot of time in New York. Um, and like, you know, I uh, was scoring stuff on the side and I I really like longed to do it full time, but I like couldn't see a path. I just mm-hmm. like, I, every time I would try to think of how am I going to do this? Like, I just couldn't see a path to like supporting myself and doing it. And, you know, um, so I stuck with the music supervision thing. And to be fair, you know, I really enjoyed a lot of it, but I did that until, oh my God, I forget what year. So like, whatever, just a few years we did it. <laughs> I'll just say that. Um, and, uh, I had the opportunity to actually open up, uh, the LA office for a music company called Walker, which was the executive producer at search party, Sarah Matarazzo left and started her own company. And she and I, um, I had basically been her proxy at Search Party. So she had worked out of the Portland office and I had run things out of the New York office. So we were used to going back and forth long distance. Um, so when she opened up her, when she opened up her new company and she wanted to open up an office in LA, um, she knew that she could trust me to set things up and run things over there for her the way that she would have wanted. So, so yeah, so I, I moved out to, she moved me out to LA uh, to be the executive producer of, of Walker. So I like found the studio space and set it up. And um, I did that for a year and a half. And then uh, it was, you know, it was about, it was like while I was doing that and, and granted, like, I mean, it was so amazing that she took that chance because I was so young. It was crazy. It was like, I would never give like, I would never be like, Hey, you 26 year old, you go out and open up my company and like, find that like that's insane like I would never give a 26 year old the you know it's nuts um but uh she you know for better really she took a chance on me so I'll always be very grateful for that um and uh after a year and a half it it there was an opportunity for me to score a documentary and it was very very um low budget but it was like it was like an out and it was like one of those things where I just knew that, like, I was like, you know, here we are. Uh, and if I don't take this and I don't make the leap now, um, I'm never going to do it. And I just, I felt it. I felt it, like, in my bones. I was like, 
you've played it safe long enough and you've learned a lot and it's time to make a big change. So I I quit and I started from the bottom. Wow. Again. From the bottom again. It was awesome. Actually, the best thing ever, I have to tell you, the first thing I got hired to do, like other than the documentary that I that I got to do was um to be someone's assistant and I was like, I w- went in thinking like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to like do like whatever, you know, like they're going to ask me to like clean up MIDI or who knows. And, um, and I literally soundproofed like, f- or sound treated like five rooms. In one day? No, like over the course of many days, but like, it was hilarious. It was like, I like came with my little lunchbox and like my sandwich and like a tool belt and like a level and like I never, you know, like a drill, like I got a drill for this job. I was like, I'm buying a drill. And then because he was like, hey, can you do this? And I was like, I sure can. And then that's what I, you know, it was like going, it was, it, you know, I went from, you know, being a, having a thing going there to uh, going to hang out panels. But it was actually... Honestly, I remember driving, he had a studio in the Palisades and I remember driving to that studio and I remember thinking like, I am so happy right now Hmm. because like all I've ever wanted is kind of to do this. And, and this is so silly that like, I was, I was kind of like, like I, I never want to make it seem like I didn't enjoy and wasn't grateful to do the music supervision stuff because a hundred percent I applied myself to that and like. It was, I would never have given that up. That was such amazing experience. And like people I know, it's fantastic to have done that. But, um, but yeah, I remember just like, I remember being so content um, doing that work for this guy because it was like, it felt like me. It felt like real, mm-hmm. felt like authentic. I was like, you know, <laughs> this is it. This is it. I'm starting out. It was great. Wow. That's amazing. And then, so you did that while you were doing this low budget doc and then just kept yeah. doing your own project at the same time? Yeah. So I did it while I was doing the low budget doc. I um, I started to get some advertising stuff to write on because like all those people I had worked with in the past, they knew I was a composer. So I started to hit them up and be like, hey, you know, I'm composing now. Like, would it be okay if I like demoed for you guys? And so I started to get some ad work coming in, um, which was helping. Me and Chris uh, had been doing Dark Dark for a, like a probably like a year or so. Um, and uh, I started pitching Dark Dark to do remixes for trailers. So we started doing some direct work with um, Universal Music Group. And they really liked what we were doing. So we started doing a lot of those. So that was helpful you know, we've done we've done these sort of trailer remixes for Sony and Universal. So it was kind of I was cobbling together like a bunch of different kinds of businesses. I think the other uh, what was the other thing I was doing? So I was doing also some freelance music supervision to kind of bridge the gap, which was really cool. You know, there were still like a couple of people that were like, hey, I really liked working with you. And like, I know you're quit, but, you know, if you if you'll do it like we we kind of just want to like keep doing it with you and I was like all right well just so you know like I'm backing away slowly but like I'll keep you know we have such a good time working together so I did do for the first couple of years after I quit I kind of did like trailer remixes ads indie movie stuff and some freelance music supervision to kind of like create the the income yeah 
and then and then I transitioned out of that to to just composing after a couple of years of like establishing because I had a lot of catching up to do like you can't just jump in at the at the middle or whatever you know it's like I always knew it was gonna <laughs> I always knew it was gonna like take a long time and like I think it's you know I remember um I actually remember having a really great conversation with Pinar Toprak. We were in the same world premieres year two concert together that Mark Robertson had put together. And Mark has just been like this most amazing mentor to me. Um, I just adore him. And he had invited me to be part of this concert that she was in. And so through that, I had been able to sit down with her and like have coffee with her at some point. And like, I just remember like... The the biggest takeaway from that was her saying to me, because I remember going like, how am I ever going to like do this? And like, I mean, not how am I ever, but it was like, I need to assist someone. Like, how do I get in? Like, I don't know what I'm trying to like figure this out. And like, I don't understand it. And, and she was like, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And of course, it's just the best advice. I mean, I literally think of that all the time and it's true. Yeah. I mean, I was really weirdly fortunate finishing my senior year at NYU to get hired to do music for a Netflix kids show. Amazing. And then I just assumed after that, it's like, oh yeah, it's all going to just come in. I, I interned at remote control for what, one month. I, I did the hours, you know? Yeah. And then like, I'm just going to make it. And then after that's done, it's just like you wait and the phone doesn't ring and then you have to do some other stuff. Yeah. I think, you know, like that's the other thing about, um, I think having like worked at uh, those music supervision companies and stuff, um, I kind of, like, was able to observe how different businesses were run from the mm-hmm. inside um, and, like, also do, like, budgets and bids and, like, manage time. Like, I'm super good at managing my own time. Like, it's it's uncanny. Like, if I say I'm going to get something done by a certain time, like, 100%, I have, like, accounted for, like, I've got padding, I've got the whole thing. Because I think about it kind of like a producer mm-hmm. because... What I used to do, of course, was hire composers and and, and brief them and, you know, give like um, ETAs to clients. So I think like it's helped. It, it is sort of helpful in like structuring like I guess I do think of like, you know, being a composer. It's like you're a little you're a little like baby business, basically. And, you know, it's all about like managing client expectations and making sure that you can like actually deliver. And like, you know, I think all that's like super helpful. Yeah. And I think that's a huge point too, because like one thing that every professional composer does is just make sure that they never send a cue in late because that won't yeah. make it to TV because you missed the dub date. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally, totally. And it's pretty yeah. incredible that that doesn't happen more often given just the changing oh structures God. of things. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So when did you start feeling like I'm confident as a composer, uh, whether musically and like technically and all that? And also just in terms of like what you'd uh, contributed music to. It's funny. I think I kind of like, I think <laughs> I started off as like a kid feeling really confident as we all do, um, like writing songs and singing and composing basically. And mm. and then I think after, and in Berkeley, I was like, I had this amazing time in the composition department and I felt like super confident. And then I like got out of school and went into the real world and like lost all of my confidence completely. Um <laughs> And as we do sometimes, and I was like, wow, like, and, you know, honestly, there was, I, I really questioned everything. Um, But I, I think in the last like two years, I want to say, so I've been, I've been freelancing for five years. In the last like two years, 
I really started to make some headway. So like there was a lot of, there were some times where I was like, only working on like Canadian, um, like National Film Board of Canada stuff, which was like super fortunate because like they were willing to kind of take a chance on me a, a little bit. Um, and uh, those were like a lot of string writing, a lot of like more sort of like orchestrally stuff, like more chambery stuff, but they're sort of open to like more experimental stuff too. So you could add a little electronics in and they're just very like nice to work with. Um, and I think, uh, so that started to snowball and I did a few projects with them. And then I got the opportunity to do some Hallmark movies, um, which were like just the best learning they've just been the best learning experience because they happen so fast like you're like oh I, you're like used to scoring a, a feature in like a few months or a couple months and then you do a hallmark movie and you're like they're like well you have three weeks uh from spotting to the mix good luck yeah um so that's yeah that <laughs> yeah that's that's like that's amazing though because now I'm like so fast. So there's like so so four of those. <laughs> um the uh you know and and then I think the the Hokkaido um thing that's that was like the first time I got to do something that was like kind of like a weird culmination of like all the little indie things that I had done because because I had done a bunch of uh Japanese influence scores. Um, for Jeff Chiba Stearns. Um, and so I had done a lot of research on Japanese instruments and like the difference between like a Chinese pentatonic scale and a Japanese pentatonic scale and writing for Koto and like doing, you know, doing kind of like things that are, you know, I never, it's never my goal to ever like do something that is like, like, I can't really write a Japanese score. Like, that's the bottom line. But what I can do is listen to a bunch of stuff, and I can kind of write my music, and then I can, like, let that permeate. So that's why sort of there's that influence there. So doing Hokkaido was, like, I mean, it was it was super fun, and, and I'm so proud of it. It was, uh, it was crazy, though. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the lack of, uh, at least with, like, Planet Earth, you have voiceover and it's telling the story but with moving art it's just visuals and music yeah exactly um exactly and i think um the other thing was it was kind of, it was like they kind of told me i was like so how about if i do mock-ups will that be okay and they were like well we don't know if the mock-ups are going to be enough and i was like huh and so i was like okay and I was a little worried. I didn't want to lose the gig because it was like, you know, my first Netflix gig and stuff. And it's really important to me. So I decided like, all right, I'm just going to like break this up and do like five recording sessions. So but then, of course, there was there wasn't very much money for it. So I was like, well, how am I going to deal with that? So I actually <laughs> ended up recording all of it in this tiny room, which you see me in now. Um, one instrument at a time. Um, some of the instruments I recorded like 17 layers of so because like I really wanted it to sound big and majestic and and powerful but like I kind of I kind of just didn't want to use anything in the box which is just insane because it's like of course you should use stuff in the box there's not a lot there's not a lot of money and like it should be orchestral I was like no I, I want it <laughs> to be like almost all live instruments so 
um, a lot of layering, a lot of sort of like creative positioning of the of the instrumentalists. Um, and I use like cello, viola, one cello, one viola, one violin. I did a bigger like percussion session where I basically recorded a bunch of different grooves, uh, a bunch of one shots, and then like used that modularly like throughout the score. And then I had a woodwind player that could play like about five different woodwinds. So she just, she came in, you know, so it was just, I was like, it was super fun because like the, the players were like friends. So I was like hanging out with my friends, making music. It was great. For sure. And then uh, I just have one last question here before we go to the last segment, but the Broken Heart Gallery is coming <laughs> yes. out soon. Uh, can you talk about what it's like doing the score for this one? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I, I'm i afraid because it was so it was such a good experience that like it scares me. It's like setting me up for like terrible disappointment um, <laughs> just because like it was so it was fun. It was it was, you know, it, it we didn't have a lot of crazy crunches going on. So Broken Heart Gallery was interesting. I demoed for it to get the job and I like talked to the director on the phone and this is before I did the demo. So, sorry, I'm saying it all out of order. I, I read this. I'm dyslexic. So like nothing's in order ever. Um, so I um, I read the script. It was awesome. And then I talked to the director and we were talking about it. And I, Natalie Krinsky, and I um, kind of pitched her on the idea of like doing a score that was kind of like genre blending um because we had both lived in new york we both lived in new york around the same time too and there was kind of that like whole sort of like a mix between like electronic music and like indie rock and like kind of like gritty pop and like it was just sort of this this cool mix of stuff that was going on at the time and then there's just that that sort of like grand feeling of being in new york where you have like bricks and beautiful architecture and like um big buildings and you know and then you have like a girl lucy who's the main character and she's collecting all these things you know she's collecting so it's kind of like how do we how do we combine all these things and one of the things that i wanted to do is to basically take a like a pop song like an indie pop song and a film score so like strings and make it cinematic but like right from the perspective of like a songwriter, you know, and mm. kind of try to write the music like kind of try to like just write the music where you you have like some little hooks and stuff. And you feel like when you're going in between when you're going between like whatever the music that licensed music was going to be in the score, like I just didn't want it to feel jarring. Like it should feel like it's Lucy's world and like her world isn't going to be this sort of austere, like, classical, like, cinematic score. It's going to be, like, this kind of, like, warmer, like, through the filter of a millennial Gen Zer kind of thing. And, like, I don't know. Yeah. It, so I talked – we talked about that, and that was that was the demo that, that I ended up writing for her. Right. And so did you know her from New York, or you said that you were just there around the same time, or was that a thing where, like, an agent sent you the script and then you've gotten a call, or how did that work? Um, no, it was that I got recommended uh, mm -hmm. by a music supervisor. Um, 
recommended me for this for this gig. I like pulled a bunch of tracks and sent them to her. And then I didn't hear anything for like like months and I completely forgot about it. I didn't know what the gig was. It was just like, hey, like rom-com, like do you have some hip hop stuff? Do you have some this stuff? Do you have some that stuff? And I was like, I was like, you're looking for like cinematic music and pop music and hip hop. Like I just pulled like a whole bunch of things. And then I was contacted by the producer totally out of the blue. And I was like, and she was like, hey, you know, we really loved your reel. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is shocking. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> it was, um, yeah, and I and I I was really excited about it. So I of course then looked up the production company and I realized like they had produced Room and you know they're amazing. Um and uh so I got really excited. Um but That's... that that was sort of how it came about, which was it was like a pitch and then a lot of conversations and then a demo and me and Natalie met for the first time at the spotting session. Gotcha. Yeah, do you find that You've been hired for a lot of projects because of the music supervision like world that you uh, you worked in. No, it's actually no. I wouldn't say so. It actually has the opposite effect um, hmm. because, and I don't again like I don't think I don't think that Melanie, the music supervisor, um, she's the one that recommended me. I don't think she recommended me because of the music supervision stuff I had done because we had never worked together in that capacity. But I do know a lot of people. I think that I think the thing is is like maybe because. Maybe because I've met a lot of people through doing the music supervision, maybe that's something where I've been lucky enough to kind of just meet a lot of really cool, like good people who do who work. Um, so there's that. Um, but I I found that it has a bit of the opposite effect, or at least it did at first. Where um, I think it's really hard for people to kind of understand the concept, like that you can do two things. And I think it's hard for people to take you seriously when you change careers. I mean, essentially. I changed careers. Like they're both music careers and they are related and they do help and inform each other. But I think I think music supervision is seen as one thing and then composing is sort of seen as as something else. And um I'm a bit of a sort of weirdo, like sitting in the hybrid because of the path that I took. But it was funny, I actually I think that I think it's more to it would make more sense to think about it like I was a composer who did music supervision for a while. And then went back to composing rather than a music supervisor who went to composing because um, the music supervision was like this really fun and interesting and unexpected interlude in my life. Um, but it wasn't what I had studied or what I thought I was going to do. So, gotcha. um, yeah. <laughs> well, it's reassuring. I think that most people know of you as a composer now. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's cool. I it's. Yeah. I mean, I definitely I definitely saw it at first as like a bit of an uphill battle because I was like, oh, no, like, how am I going to convince like going to convince people that I can do it? But what I realized is that I just have to fucking work hard and just try to get better. And like, eventually the work will speak for itself. And um, you know, I think being dyslexic, I got used to like working really, really hard just to do basic stuff like when I was little, my mom always used to say, like, honey, you're going to have to work twice as hard as everyone else to get the same result. And I was like, wow, that sucks, but okay. And it just sort of was the reality that I kind of, like, not that I not that I work harder than anyone else now at all. I'm, never, I'm definitely not saying that. I know some people that work crazy hard. Um, but I think I just got used to sort of being the underdog in my head and, like, thinking, like, wow, I'm, like, going to have to punch above my weight to, like, get up. 
into that whatever it is. And um, so I think I always like approach everything with like absolutely 100% of myself. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, it seems like it's paying off. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers uh, crossed. <laughs> for sure. Uh, so we're going to go to the final segment for the podcast, a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech ah. topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. Ooh. First one, Excitement. it's pretty easy. DAW. Uh, logic. Cool. It's great. Um, it, it's fun. It functions. Um, no logic. Uh, I like it. It's, it's, I mean, it's the easiest one I think for me, I've tried them all. And this one I find to be like the least obtrusive to my writing process. So I think that's the main thing for me on that. And, uh, what else? I like the, uh, flex time situation and logic and you know i i don't know i can't think of another like good reason except i've bounced around i used to use dp and then i like tried with pro tools and i just kept finding myself right back home at logic my home cool. logic uh next we have vocal <laughs> mic vocal mic um i have this uh neumann tlm 103 cool. uh that i use and i have like a I have like a analog channel strip basically um, that I use with it that helps me dial out all the yucky mid frequencies in my voice. Because when I sing, when I sing with dark, dark, I'm singing like, ah, like I sing like super like, you know, and, and so I like dial everything out. I'm just like, I just want you to hear like the whisper. <laughs> so um, that's the, yeah, the whisper machine. Cool, cool. Uh, next, we got analog synth. Um, analog synth. I guess the, I guess the, is this analog? I guess it is. The Prophet Rev 2 is pretty Ooh. rad. I have this little guy. Ooh. This is a micro brute. Um, which to be honest with you, I hadn't found a lot of use for until I started doing this thriller that I'm doing, um, which I keep calling it the, the thriller because I'm not allowed to say what it is and I'm not allowed to say who it's for. <laughs> so that's fun. Um, but um, I've I've been creating some very uh, toothy bass bass sounds with that, so that's that's really fun. Um, but the Prophet Rev Two uh, is is like super versatile, and like it's definitely the most versatile piece of the gear that I have. Cool. Yeah. About EQ. EQ. Um, I guess the Waves SSL EQ is what I use the most often. Um, and I just, you know, I do it, I, I do it to taste, I wiggle it around until I like how it sounds. Ooh, that was great. <laughs> well, you killed it here with Tech Talk. Uh, <laughs> wiggle it around until it makes sense. There you yeah, go. It's my whole motto for synthesis. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it was such a pleasure having you on Genevieve and, uh, Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, I love your podcast. I've been tearing through them one by one. So I appreciate you asking me to be on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong. <laughs>